You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Good evening. Great to be with you. I hope you're enjoying these beautiful surroundings and the shock and joy of the snow this morning, looking ahead at Christmas time. As I've been thinking about Christmas time, I've been thinking about the carols that we sing at this time of year, and it's one carol in particular, and in fact, it's four opening lines that I'd love to use as the backdrop for our thinking together this evening. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And it's one word specifically that's caught my attention, and it's a little word that we use more at Christmas time than in any other time of the year. We sing about it in our songs. We have it printed on our cards and decorations and our light displays. We wish it over one another. A little word with huge implications, in case you haven't guessed, given the preamble, the little word, peace. But I'd like to take a step back and start at the beginning, and this will feel like a little bit of a gear change from our day-to-day experiences with an experience of mine from my childhood. One of my earliest memories is of the exact opposite of peace. It's of me being jolted awake in the early hours of the morning by the explosion of shattering glass, the floor-to-ceiling windows of the bedroom that I shared with my sisters in our home in Tehran. It's the wailing sound in the background, the sirens indicating yet another bomb raid. It's the immediate animated chaos, the immediate awakeness of a country that lost half a million civilians alongside its military personnel in what was considered then the bloodiest war that the Middle East had seen in modern times. My family lived through the whole of the Iran-Iraq war in the capital city of Iran, in Tehran. And even now, these many years on, as I look back, that shattered glass remains for me, if you like, the image, the symbol of our struggles, our anxieties, our brokenness. I wonder what image or what memory will capture that thought for you. Writing this time last year, Charles Nevin of the New York Times, catching up and trying to sum up the trauma of the year, he wrote this, randomly, incompletely, Syria, Zika, Haiti, Orlando, Nice, Charlotte, Brussels, Bowie, Prince, Ali, Cohen. Not everyone was delighted by the results of important votes in the United States and Britain either. Broadsheet after broadsheet, tabloid after tabloid, blogs and the Twitter sphere all told us time and again that 2016 was the worst year ever. (laughs) Maybe the New Yorker in its own tongue-in-cheek fashion hit at something a little more deeply entrenched. Not just the chaos, the sense of disorder out there, but the psychology that has begun to be defining of our times, generation anxiety, we're called. It's headlined just before the turning of the year, the worst year ever until next year. I'll spare you a recap of the low points of the year, other than to say that maybe those words have proved truer than we might have hoped. For myself, the more I travel and speak to people from all around the world, the more it seems to me that regardless of the global backdrop 
all of us in our own individual stories were oscillating between two different personas, us in the pretense and the games of power, believing we can do it, that our strength is enough, that we have the know-how or the ability or the smarts to come out on top, that everything will be okay, that we can rely on our own strength. And then us in the privacy and the pressure of our anxieties. We live oftentimes in the private stress of our modern times where one little niggle or another gets in and we often carry those burdens alone. And I've begun to wonder whether if we're really honest with ourselves, whether if we manage to live our lives unfiltered despite all the noise and the pretense to the contrary, whether it might actually be the case that intrinsic to being human is an incredible sense of powerlessness. We seem to be utterly powerless when it matters to us the most. Bereavement, sickness, loss, abuse, maybe children who've gone away from us in one way or another, we can't seem to win them back. Anxiety, disorders, mental health issues, which are the epidemic of our time. Powerless when it matters to us the most. Just recently, I got to meet a former Miss America, and uh, she was talking to me about the world of beauty pageants. And uh, I realized this maybe analogy is not cool, but nevertheless, it reminded me of the movie Miss Congeniality with Sandra Bullock, who's this kind of hard-nosed cop in it, and she has to go undercover as a beauty pageant contestant in order to win this case. And contestant after contestant come on stage, and they answer a whole array of questions with the words, world peace. Two ecstatic applause from the audience. And she gets her moment on the platform. She's asked, actually, this incredible question. She's asked, what is the one thing that our society most desperately needs? And she answers with utter conviction that would be harsher punishment for parole violator Stan. To a shocked and silent audience, she realizes she's losing her crowd and blowing her cover, and she recovers and gains control by saying, and world peace to ecstatic praise. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. These are words that are interwoven through most of the carols that we sing at this time of year. They're words that are taken from the announcement of the birth of Jesus in the Gospels. We so often sing them without a second thought, but on earth, peace. What would this even look like? Is there anything that is harder or more elusive to achieve than peace? Richard Dawkins, I think he needs little introduction, probably one of the world's most famous atheists, debated John Lennox, professor of mathematics at Oxford University at the Museum of Natural History some years ago now. You can still see the debate online. And in it, he said this staggering statement. I've never forgotten it since. He he said that the idea that God would come down into this world 
and take on human flesh and allow himself to be tortured and killed on a cross in order to pay the penalty for and to overcome the evil and the suffering in this world. He said, and this is the the exact phrase, he said that he found that idea petty and small-minded, that it didn't do justice to the grandeur of the universe. And I found myself listening to him and being both intrigued and staggered by that comment. Intrigued because it struck me that that wasn't far off what the disciples, the followers of Jesus, thought at the time. If you've read the New Testament for yourself, you'll know that there was quite some confusion, some tension, some back and forth about the trajectory of Jesus' life, the idea that if Jesus really was God, there'd be a different plot line something of grandeur and pomp and ceremony, power in our typically narrow human readings. Staggered because 2,000 years on from those events, I found myself listening to Professor Dawkins and thinking to myself, is it possible that he hasn't seen the size of the problem? Or is it that he hasn't understood what Jesus is claiming to have accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. Some of you may be familiar with the International Day of Peace. It's this incredible venture. Jeremy Gilly, who's one of the men at the forefront of the campaign to instate just one day, one day of ceasefire and nonviolence around the world, talks of the incredible journey to make that dream become a reality. How with almost no financial backing and with just a handful of supporters, Hundreds of conversations and communications came together to secure an invitation from Mr. Gilly at the United Nations General Assembly in New York, an invitation from Kofi Annan, where the first ever ceasefire non-violence day as a fixed calendar date for the 21st of September was unanimously adopted by every head of state in this world. Incredible result. And Kofi Annan invited Mr. Gilly to join him at a press conference to announce this venture. And here it is in Mr. Gilly's words. It was 8 a.m. when I stood there. And I was waiting for him to come down. And I knew that he was on his way. And obviously he never came down. The statement was never made. The world was never told there was a day of global ceasefire and nonviolence. You know why not? Because it was September 11, 2001, right there in the heart of New York. Is there anything that is harder or more elusive to achieve than peace? One of the privileges of my job is that I get to travel the world over and speak to people from every conceivable background and culture and context. It always really fascinates me how people of different backgrounds approach and engage with the claims of Christ. Here in the West, we're a culture increasingly illiterate about the Christian faith. Many of us, having never even read the New Testament for ourselves, have discounted the claims of Christ on the basis that some kind of vague cultural awareness is as good as a thorough investigation. For myself... I find that I am constantly shocked by the Bible. 
it repeatedly forces you to re-examine your paradigms, and it was no different for the people who heard it first. Earlier, we had words read to us from the Gospel of Matthew, the announcement of the birth of Jesus, and we heard how we were told that the angel told Joseph that the baby is to be called Jesus, in the Hebrew meaning, God saves. Well, so far, so good. (laughs) The Jewish culture into which that announcement was made was expecting exactly that. They are an oppressed, hounded minority with this huge, occupying, oppressive power pushing in on them. Their entire paradigm for understanding the promises of God is that God would break into this world and bring about a political, a sociological upheaval, that they would be rescued from the political context in which they find themselves. So name the baby Jesus, God saves, because he will save his people from and Everyone is expecting that sentence to end with the list of the enemies of the Jews because he'll save his people from their enemies, from this oppressive power that has so hounded and belittled them, that has got them so crushed and so bowed down. Name him Jesus. God saves. Because he will save his people from, and instead of every expectation, these staggering words, because he'll save his people from their sins. It's unbelievable. We read these words as a religious nicety. To the people who heard it first, it was an unthinkable and unbelievable insult, like saying to some of the worst hounded minorities oppressed and abused on every front, what you really need saving from is from your sins. And yet, if for even just a moment we engage with this story as a little more than just a Christmas fairy tale, and we consider these words directed at us, and we probe the responses of our culture a little bit more carefully, it strikes me that our responses aren't so dissimilar after all. We're a culture, we're a generation deeply offended by the idea of guilt We've medicalized and psychologized away every misdemeanor. We repeatedly cast ourselves as the victim to somebody else's misconduct. We're deeply offended by the idea, the suggestion, the audacity that we might need saving from our sins. There was a humanist campaign a little while ago, hundreds of billboards all around the world with the words, Good without God, question mark. Millions are. Have we given enough thought to what it is that we are claiming here? Visual props are not usually my thing. (laughs) But here we go. I wonder if you can imagine that this glass sphere represents us at peace. We so often think of peace as the absence of violence, the absence of conflict, maybe the presence of a stillness. The Bible envisages a whole lot more. Us 
as whole beings at one, at rest, at peace with ourselves. Us as beings in community, at peace with one another, living in the depth and breadth of true relationship. Us at peace with the created order, living in mutually sustaining harmony. Peace is wholeness. Peace is deep wellness. Peace is connectedness. And I want you to imagine that this thread which holds this fear and runs through it and connects it all together and is the thread by which it freely hangs is the defining thread of our relationship with God which sustains and gives life to the whole. And the message of the Bible in a nutshell is that we who were created to live in the peace sustained by relationship with God turned our backs on Him and severed that connection. And found ourselves free-falling to a shattered end, a myriad different scattered pieces. There's no way back. This is not a cosmetic problem. No amount of money thrown at it will fix this. No political or sociological breakthrough, no amount of humanitarian work, no re-education or rewiring of the human psychology will ever see this world set right again as futile as the rearranging of shattered glass. It is only in reconnecting with God that peace is to be found. But we are so disintegrated beyond our intended state that there's now no, even no connecting piece by which that thread can hang anymore. We're powerless to bridge that gap. Petty and small-minded it might seem to Professor Dawkins, but the claim of the Christian faith is that God himself has bridged that gap in the person of Christ. Jesus came to earth, dealt with the root of our procurement, our moral shatteredness, our moral brokenness, overcame it, and in so doing, took on the brokenness, the shatteredness, if you like, of our suffering, and overcame and defeated. And now he offers us, if we should want it, restored relationships which is why when the message paraphrases the New Testament talking about the God of peace, it writes this, God who puts all things together and makes all things whole, may he now put you together by means of the sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah. Oh, glory to Jesus forever and always. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I don't know what your story will be as you're sitting here. I've ended with this imagery of the shattered glass, if you like, of our global order. I started with the shattered glass that was my personal story. I don't know if all that you are holding is intact. I know that in my own experience, God has been big enough, powerful enough, strong enough to hold together the big story and kind enough, gracious enough, willing enough to meet me in my own. In just a second, we're going to read those, sing those words together. 
the words that form the backdrop of my thinking on this. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, wow, I didn't really know that that restored relationship, that reconciled relationship was what this was all about. And actually, I'd like to know that relationship. There's no magic trick involved in this. I'm going to offer a prayer in just a second. But before I do, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say. And if you're thinking, I'd want to know this relationship, I want to find out more about it, why don't you pray along with me in your heart and just say amen at the end. I'm just going to pray, sorry, thank you, please. Sorry, God, for the things that I've done wrong, my moral brokenness, my moral shatteredness. Thank you that you came and took that shatteredness on yourself and overcame it and defeated it. And please come into my life. If that restored relationship is possible, I want it. And I'm just going to pray that for us as we close this Christmas talk together. And if you are there in your heart and you want to respond, just respond quietly where you're at. And then Pete will come back up. Father, we come to you today and we say we're sorry. Sorry for our moral brokenness. Sorry for the way that we think about guilt, that we don't like to think about it as addressed to ourselves. But Lord, we know we've all done things that are wrong. Sorry for our moral shatteredness, our moral brokenness. Thank you, Jesus, that you came into this world. And even at Christmas time, as we celebrate Jesus coming into this world, we thank you, God, that you took on the root of our predicament. You took on that moral brokenness. You took on the suffering, the shatteredness of our stories, and you overcame it and defeated it. And thank you that through that, you offer us a relationship. And please, will you come and make that relationship a reality in our lives? Show us how to respond to you. Please, will you come and make your home in us and let that peace that only you can bring Live in our hearts today and always. In the name of Jesus, amen.